When the cat is away, the mice play. That's right. It's a phrase that we may have heard before, that this crazy corporate reality that, you know, when the boss is gone, leadership is seemingly lost, accountability really is light at best. It's crazy what employees begin to do and how they begin to behave. You read newspaper articles about some of the behavior and some of the antics when the boss is gone, whether it be on vacation or away on business. You know, you read things like the employees are on the roof playing laser tag. Some of you have done this. Or for sure we know that productivity goes down because people grab their phones They're spending countless hours on Twitter, Facebook. Their momentary conversations at the water cooler become an hour-long dialogue about who's better, the Steelers or the Ravens. This conversation could end quite quickly in my life. Uh, Doesn't need to be an hour, but nonetheless, these are the kind of things that happen when the boss is gone, when leadership is absent and accountability seems to not be present. When the, when the cat is away, the, the mice play. It's a situation that we find ourselves in in Exodus chapter 32. I'm going to encourage you to follow along with me. It's also going to be up on the screen. We see that Moses had left the people. He had gone to the top of Sinai to be with the Lord. And Days had turned into weeks, and weeks were becoming close to a month, if not more than that, where the people are left at the bottom of the mountain with these simple instructions, wait, don't do anything. And so, again, the days become weeks, and the weeks become months, and the people get confused, they get a little distraught, they're not sure what to do. Maybe this Moses is gone for good. Maybe our leader, uh, who is guiding us and telling us what to do, will never return at all. So the people don't really know what to do. And like many of us, when they don't know what to do, they do what they know, don't they? That's what we see taking place in this chapter Exodus 32. I would love for you to follow along with me. When the people don't know what to do, they do what they know. Verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses... The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, 
These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14 says, And the Lord relented from the disaster that He had spoken of bringing on His people. What a shocking narrative that we find ourselves in here this morning. These people have been saved, have been brought out of Egypt. They've been delivered from Pharaoh 400 plus years. And they were brought through the wilderness, through the sea, and brought to the base of this mountain. They were given very simple instructions in like a cosmological event, in thunder, in lightning. And they were given ten words. And the first word was simple. You shall worship no one else but me. And the second one, connected to it, shall not make idols. Shall not grave images, right? And bow down to them. He forbid idolatry. And because in this moment, at the base of the mountain, a little bit confused, growing impatient with God, not sure what to do, 
They do exactly what they know. The text says that they go to Aaron and they demand, get up, make us gods. What? A shocking demand. Make us a god who shall go before us. As if they did not already have a god that had gone before them. Make us gods, Aaron. And the most shocking thing continues to go on. That that they don't know where this Moses is. So Aaron takes, tells them to take off all their gold. All the earrings that come that are on their wives and their sons and their daughters. And to bring them to him. Right? These very, this very jewelry that what? Was given to them through the plundering of the Egyptians. Right? God's provision for them. They're now taking uh, from off of their bodies, and they're now taking them. And the text tells us that in an in intensity, uh, intensifying manner, that more and more they're sh- doing things that they should not. As they, Aaron takes this gold into his hand and he fashions it, he, he melts it down and he makes and engraves a golden calf. We're shocked as we read this. That the people of Israel are so quickly turning to make a God for themselves when they don't know what to do. And you may ask the question, why a golden calf, right? Why, why, would, the, why would they make a, a calf out of gold? Well, if you remember that the calf or the, the apis bull was that which represented one of the main gods and deities of Egypt. And so again, they, when they don't know what to do, they go back to what they know. They go back to their default setting. When there seems to be no direction, when there needs, seems to be no guidance, they turn away from the one who has guided them, who is in the midst of saving them, and they go back to their former ways. And they begin to worship in the ways of the Egyptians. And what we see here is that although they have been saved out of Egypt, Egypt is still in them. Right? I think for so many of us, we feel that very same tension in our hearts. That that yes, we've been saved by God. We've been delivered from sin. We've been declared righteous by Him. But there is still this pull, this this lure, that when we don't know what to do, we're going to do what we know. And we're going to find something to worship, find something to rely upon that's of our own making, that serves our own desires and purposes. That's the nature of sin. While we've been saved from Egypt, Egypt still lives inside of us. We feel this every day. The lure to, a, to an unholy and impure affection, to worship a God of our own making, to give ourselves over to a created thing, that which we have made, rather than giving ourselves over to the one who has made us. And not only do they make this golden calf, they identify this calf with the one who has redeemed them. Here's the golden calf. And this golden calf is the one who has delivered you from Egypt. What a shockingly offensive identification. 
In other words, this is Yahweh. And if that wasn't enough, we see that not only do they identify their God with the God who brought them out of Egypt, they begin to celebrate this God. What an ironic and crazy statement we read, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. We're going to celebrate to the Lord. We're almost clothing our idolatry in Christian terms, if you will. And I think for so many of us, this is what we wrestle with, what we struggle with. Right? That, that it may not be Egypt that is in us, but it may be America that is in us. And we call it Christian. American ideals and, 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 and values that's inside of us that are contrary to the God that has revealed himself to us and redeemed us. Right? That Americanism is still inside of us. The ways and the values and the principles of the world in which we live. And we call it Christian. We're going to be like this. We're going to value this. We're going to worship this. And then we're going to say, praise the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. And so that's what they do. They rise up the next day and they offer burnt offerings. We wonder, how would the Lord respond to this? What is God thinking? Is God even there? Is He present? Does He see what they're doing? Does He know what's going on? The text tells us that He does. He knows. You see, employees often believe that the, the boss doesn't know. Right? As if there isn't constant surveillance to control what the employees are doing, right? While the boss is gone, I can do whatever I want. No one will know. There'll be no consequence. But we see here that there is divine surveillance, that the Lord knows what they have done. Your people, whom you've brought out, have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside from my ways. They have disobeyed me. I have seen it. I am aware of it. And I know who these people are. They are stiff-necked people. That's what he's concluded. The Lord knows what they have done. The Lord sees who these people really are. I think for so many of us, we live in a world of our own making where God is unaware of our wickedness. Where God doesn't really know what we are struggling with that our sins are hidden, that they're secret, that they go unnoticed, that it's just this little secret that we have that nobody really knows about. And we protect it. And in our own hearts, we continue to celebrate it as a good thing. Or maybe we don't. Maybe we feel the guilt of it. But whatever the case may be, we think it's secret. But understand this, that the eyes of the Lord are on all that we do, always, no matter where we are. That nothing that we do is hidden from the sight of the Lord. And not only does He see what we do, but He looks through our actions and He sees the very nature of who we are as a people. We are stiff-necked. That this action shows who they are. That they refuse to bend the neck. It's an agricultural term. 
right? That, that, that the ox or the, or, the, or the mule or the, or the cow, whatever the animal was that was being used for agriculture, would need to receive the yoke. In order to receive the yoke and therefore obey the task of his master, he had to bend his neck. He or she had to bend his neck. It was necessary to submit to the yoke. And what he's saying here is that these people refuse to bend. They will not bend their neck. They will not receive my yoke upon them and begin to walk in obedience to my ways. Reminds me of my lawnmower because I have this old school lawnmower that uh, I tried to replace the regular blade with a mulching blade, so I flipped the thing over and uh, I'm, I'm there with my wrench and I'm trying so hard spraying the living daylights with all this WD-40. I'm going nuts. Got Crisco on the, on the stinking driveway. I'm doing whatever it takes to get this thing loose. And no matter what I do, no matter how much force, no matter what sort of concoction I come up with, no matter how many tools I go to Sears and buy to get this bolt off and replace it, it will not turn. It will not bend. It's bent in a way that keeps it from moving. That's our hearts. That's what God sees. When God sees our sin, He sees past the behavior, and He sees in the deepest part of who we are, and He recognizes that we are indeed a stiff-necked people, unwilling to bend in our sin. Unwilling to do what He says. And we look at verse 10, that this reality, that we are sinning and that we are sinful, is something that His anger wholly Wrath burns against. We don't like a God that burns in anger against sin. Sure, we watch TV and we look at criminals and we think, yeah, that guy should be punished for what he did. He should go away. I'm glad I'm not that guy and I'm not that bad. But when it comes to our own lives and we look in the mirror and we recognize that we are absolutely inconsistent by nature with the holiness of God and that we are sinful and stiff-necked and really refuse to walk in His ways, that is treason. That is criminal activity. And the, the truth is this, that the holiness of God does not tolerate sinful behavior. I think that's the, the, the most shocking and scary reality of this passage is that, that the wrath of God burns against Anything that His holiness will not tolerate. And that includes our sin. The wrath of God justly burns against that which His holiness will not tolerate. The Lord is angry. He's, he's frustrated, and rightly so. Not in an uncontrolled manner where He's losing control, like a dad frustrated with his kids. That was a personal testimony. No, but in a controlled holy manner he is angry and indignant against that which is corrupt that which disobeys his will and so these people are on the verge of being annihilated rightly so on the basis of their sin but the text says that moses implores the lord is god that right on the in the midst and in the verge of receiving full punishment of being annihilated because of their sin there is a voice that comes 
to the throne room of God. And it is the voice of Moses who asks two questions. Why, Lord? Why does your anger burn against your people? I love the change, right? He's, the Lord in his anger has identified these people with Moses. But Moses, as he intercedes and goes before God, says, wait a minute, why is your anger burning against your people? You brought them out of Egypt. You can feel the emotion of that as Moses stands in between a people ready to be ruined and a God that is holy and righteous in doing that ruining. He stands in between. He becomes a, a party that is pursuing peace between God that is holy and humanity that is sinful. And he says, why would you do this? These are your people. Why should Egypt have to say, ah, Yahweh saved them so that he could kill them? And so there is this plea for mercy as the intercessor, the, the in-between, stands in the gap on, the behalf, on behalf of the people and says, have mercy, God, in simple terms. He says, turn from your anger. Relent from this disaster. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, every plea for mercy is rooted in God's promise. And you say, Moses is manipulating God. Ah, but you said, Lord, this is not manipulative. This is simply Moses connecting his plea for mercy to the promises and intentions that he knows God has for his people. On the basis of your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you swore by your own name, would you please relent? Would you please not ruin and destroy these people? You know, Moses could have selfishly said, yeah, that sounds good to me. Kill all those people and let's start over, you and me. But he understands the intentions and the purposes of God, doesn't he? And he says this, valuing the holiness of God. He understands that the wrath of God burns hot against all that which his holiness will not tolerate. But he also understands that the wrath of God, the only hope for the wrath of God to relent is just a cry for mercy based on promise. Any hope for us to be um, saved from the holy wrath of God on our sin has to be rooted in His covenant promise based on mercy. It's not based on our merit. It's got to be based on mercy. I think one of the most fundamental questions that this text raises for us as we come face to face with our sin and face to face with the holy wrath of God toward our sin is how on what basis that is, can we be saved from the wrath of God? You need to ask that question. You may be simply asking questions like this. How am I getting groceries before dinner tonight? How am I going to get all that I need to get done this week? You may be just simply asking the practical questions of life. And not the ultimate ones. But this text raises the ultimate question. Given my sin... In my offense to God, how will I be saved from the wrath of a holy God against my sin? On what basis can I have any hope for mercy? And the answer is simply, on the basis of His promise. 
on the basis of his covenant mercy and his intention to save us for those purposes alone. And verse 14 says that he relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing upon his people. And then Moses turns, verse 15. Right, he's in this moment interceding. He's representing the people to God. He stands in between like, like a mother stands in between the sin of his son or her son and the holiness of God and says, Please, Lord, I know he is wayward, but will you pour out your mercy upon his life? Some of you mothers have been there, and some of you mothers will be there, standing in between the sin of the Son and the holiness of God, representing them. But now Moses turns and he represents God. And look at what verse 15 through the end of the chapter tells us. I'm going to try to move along as fast as I can. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's the noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you've brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of the, my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who, you, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. And then I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Interesting take, isn't it? He left out a few details. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on side of each of you and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord, and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, 
But now, if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go. Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf the one that Aaron made. You see, Moses has represented the people to God, and now Moses recognizes that although the anger of the Lord has relented, the sin has not. Right? He goes down the mountain. He's carrying the two tablets engraved by the fingers of God. What a valuable thing. What a representative thing that says, this is our covenant. This is our agreement with God. This is how our relationship will be established and sustained. So he walks down the mountain. And on the way, he picks up Joshua, who is probably about halfway down. And together, they walk down the mountain and they begin to hear noises, right? And Joshua thinks, oh, this, this must be the sound of war. But Moses, knowing the true nature of the sound, says this. He says, this isn't the sound of, of defeat or of victory. This is a celebration, right? Because the people are celebrating their new God. They're celebrating, in many ways, their sin, what they have done. They're excited about it, and they're anticipating great things, albeit uh, incorrectly. And we see that what happens as he comes near to the camp, he sees the calf, he sees the celebrating, and we see the, the same anger of the Lord being represented in Moses, don't we? That there's a holy indignation in Moses for what he sees, that he's offended, that he's bothered, that he's angered by sin. And so then he does two symbolic things that point to some spiritual realities. He takes the tablets, and what does he do? He throws them to the ground so that they break, thus showing that the fruit of sin, sin separates us from God. It breaks relationship with God. We were made to know Him and to love Him and to be in relationship with Him. And our sin breaks it. It breaks covenant. When we worship and give our allegiance to other things and other gods, it is a true breaking of relationship. It's broken. And so he breaks the tablets. And then the next thing he does is he takes the calf. And what does he do? He burns it. The, the holy anger of the Lord now is, is being represented in the, the destruction, the removal of that which is the sin, the fruit of the sin. Right? They're an idolatrous people, and there is their idol. And so symbolically, the destroying of the idol is the destroying of the idolatry. That the only way to restore peace between God and His people is complete and total decisive removal of idolatry. 
So some of you here today may be wondering, how do I be, begin to be restored back into relationship with God that my sin has disrupted? It's very simple. Dis- decisive, complete removal of your sin. It needs to be defeated. It needs to be removed. And so he takes it and he removes it. And then he goes to Aaron. He confronts him and says, what have you done? And Aaron's like, listen, I don't know what happened. I threw some gold into the fire and out came this calf and they started worshiping it. Don't look at me. Right? Because that's what we do so often with our sin. We try to cover it up. We try to blame something else. And I think to some degree that's getting at some, some of the needs of this passage that, that when we sin, it needs to be covered. It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be removed. And then Moses goes to the people and he stands in the gate and he asks a simple question offering for every person there an opportunity to repent. Who is on the Lord's side? Maybe that's a question you need to consider this morning. Who is on the Lord's side? The truth is, for the most part here, no one is. Right in this passage? No one truly is. But yet, based on promise, based on intention, and based on the call here, the offer is extended that if they just turn from their ways right now and turn to Moses and come to him and declare that I, we know we've messed up, but we decide in this moment that we are on the Lord's side, that they would be spared. And the text tells us that The Levites gather around him. But the sad reality is this, is that many didn't. The call and the offer to repent was given, but the people did not respond. And so the holy, righteous indignation of God went against his people. And they were told to take the sword And to go throughout the camp and kill those who are unrepentant. You see, it's in this moment that we get very uncomfortable. We come to the fact that all of us in our sin must face the wrath of God. It's a reality that we must face. We cannot escape it. It may feel like we are escaping it in the moment. But please understand this, that the wrath of God burns against all which His holiness will not tolerate. We all must face the wrath of God. And for those who refuse in their stiff-neckedness, those who refuse to respond to the offer of repentance, those who refuse to rid themselves of this idol, those who refuse to pursue peace with God, there is no hope to be saved from the wrath of God. There's no hope. There is no hope 
for the unrepentant, the unforgiven. Please hear this. Your sin, my sin, must be forgiven to be saved from the wrath of God. That's the great need of this passage. There's only six verses, really, that talk about what they did. What we see here is the tension of how are we to be saved from the wrath of God? Again, the question you don't ask in the nine to five of life, but you need to be asking it today. You need to see your sin for what it is. It is a corruption of you. It is a turning away from the one who has saved you and redeemed you. And it's something that God hates and will judge. We must hear the call, who is on the Lord's side, and run to Him for mercy. Don't leave today with outrunning to God in repentance, pleading for mercy from His hand. Moses understands that these people's sin needs atoned for, that forgiveness is absolutely necessary lest the wrath of God be poured out upon them. Do you? Do you feel that sense of urgency with those in your lives that do not know Christ? Do not trust in Him? Do you feel this sense of urgency? Do you understand what is at stake when it comes to sin in your life and sin into the world? I don't think I do. Look at what's at stake. This people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, forgiveness is necessary because if you're not forgiven, look at what he says. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. See, there's a book that records people that are in relationship with God. It's what leaders and rulers used to do. They used to have a book that recorded who was a part of their domain, who was a part of their kingdom. The text says that if, that if we are not forgiven of our sin, we're blotted out, we're erased from the book. We do not have eternal life. See, we're good at minimizing our sin. We're good at laughing it off. We're good at, good at focusing on other things. But we need to be thoughtful about our sin before God. How will we be saved? How can we be forgiven? Well, Moses knows it's through atonement. Peace must be established as God's wrath is satisfied. God's wrath must be satisfied against sin. He does not just overlook it. In relenting, he does not just say, ah, well, I guess I won't punish it. If anything, what we see here especially in verse 34, that verse 14 is simply an act of grace to press the pause button on his wrath. Look at what he says. Understand this. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. 
Understand this, nevertheless, in the day when I visit, when I show up, I will visit their sin upon them. The Lord will visit sin. He will punish sin. He has to. Because in His holiness, His character will not tolerate it. I know this is a heavy text, but I want you to see the kind of God that we worship. A wrathful, vengeful, jealous, holy God that does not put up with our sin. He will visit it. And so in this moment, He has put the pause button on it. It must be satisfied. It must be poured out justly against sin. Moses knows that. The people need atoning. They need payment to be made on their behalf for them to be forgiven. And so he offers himself. Kind of like Paul. I wish that that I would be damned and the people of Israel would be saved. Moses is saying, listen, blot me out from the book. Let me, in their place, incur all the punishment that they deserve. He understands the need for atonement. He understands the need for a substitute sacrifice to be made for those whom God has called and saved to be set free from this imminent wrath that is to be poured upon them. But Moses can't do it. Yes, he represents the people. Yes, he represents God to the people. But Moses can't pay for their sin. He can't accomplish it. It's a a nice gesture. It's well intended. But it's insufficient. God does not receive that request. But he does provide the answer to his wrath through a substitute. He does provide the way for atonement. And I want you to see that, that although his wrath is a reality that we must face, we can be forgiven of our sin if someone else faces it for us. Don't miss that today. It's there. As Moses offers himself, understand this, that there is another one who would be the perfect representative of mankind. Who would be the perfect representative of God to mankind. One who is fully God and fully human. One who would stand in the gap and intercede. Who would be able to to seek peace between both parties. And represent both well. Isaiah 53 talks about this Savior as one who bears the sin of many. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. You know who I'm talking about. That what Moses was incapable and insufficient to do, although well-intended, understanding that forgiveness of sin is necessary to be saved from the wrath of God, There is another one who is perfect and capable and sufficient to provide the forgiveness we need so that we can be restored in relationship with God. So that that's what was broken in the earth can be restored and fixed and repaired by the mercy and work of God. How many of you crave 
peace with the living God, knowing that you are no longer condemned because of your sin, that the wrath of God has been dealt with and satisfied in someone else so that you don't have to receive it and experience it, that you can just simply know the joy of forgiveness. Because if you're not forgiven, you're blotted out. If your sin's not atoned for, if it's not properly dealt with, you will face the wrath of Almighty God. You will not live forever. But through Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven. That's the gospel. That's what this text foreshadows for sure. The need for an in-between. Someone to stand and plead for us and say, don't, Father, don't pour out your wrath on your people. Pour it out on me. And while the wrath of God is a reality that we all must face, it is one that we can be set free from, we can be saved from. Because our sins are forgiven when someone else faces his wrath for us. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the one who stands in the gap. Who is committed to the holiness of God. And yet does all that is necessary to satisfy the wrath that comes from it and also to secure for each and every one of us the forgiveness that was necessary to restore order and harmony and peace in relationship with God. Give your whole being to Him today. Who is on the Lord's side here? Are you? Are you on the Lord's side? Jesus hung on a cross to make that invitation worthwhile to respond to. The wrath of God is a reality that we all must face lest we are forgiven because someone else faces it for us. This is really the beginning of Moses continuing to show us what an intercessor is, what an in-between is. Someone who is representing the Lord and representing God. And I think all the more gives us great insight into the ministry, eternal ministry, of Jesus our Savior. Where Moses is insufficient, Christ is sufficient. And He continues to make intercession for us as He sits on the throne in heaven. But please, don't leave today without dealing with the sin issue, the idolatry issue that each and every one of us deals with and the wrath of God that we all must face. And cling tight to Jesus, who is the basis for our forgiveness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your great Provision in Jesus Christ. You are a holy God. You are full of wrath and fury. You are jealous 
Help us to understand that about you. Help us to fear you and to, to, to bend our neck in our will and to give our heart to you. Please heal us of our tendency to be idolatrous and stiff-necked. Heal us of that. Give us a new heart by the Spirit. One that is soft to you and ready and willing to keep your commands. And Lord, I pray that every person here would leave with the assurance that their sin has been dealt with by Jesus. May they live in hope. Maybe there's someone here today that is feeling great condemnation over a secret sin. Maybe it's time to come clean and repent and get rid of it. And maybe it's time to turn to Jesus and say, please be enough for me. Lord, I pray that you would give them assurance today that they are forgiven, that they are clean. No matter how dirty they may feel, because of the blood of Jesus, they have been cleansed. And I pray that if there's anybody here today that is just kind of bored right now, that doesn't really see the relevance of their wickedness before God, that doesn't feel the weight of His wrath, that I pray that, that you would wake, awaken them to this truth that we often are so ignorant of. You are holy, and you will visit sin. And I pray that they turn to Christ and are saved and at peace with you. We ask this in Jesus' name.